Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's the Wonky Show. There's a practical return to campus, new reports on digital learning and extracurricular activities, and Gavin Williamson's Examiny Shambles has been recommissioned for its second great season. It's all coming up. So the, the point is, why are we asking people to go somewhere? Whether it's going into the office, whether it's going into, <laughs> yeah, you know, the, shops. the, uh, the <laughs> university, whatever. Is there a reason right now for them to be there? And with students, um, a lot is going to depend on the kind of things Paul's just talked about. You know, is that if, they, if they're there because they can compensate for some of the things they've missed. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your direct way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm your host, Jim Dickinson, and here to help us reminisce about those biscuits you used to get at sector events. As usual, we have two fabulous guests. Uh, in scenic Harborn, Smita Jamdar is partner and head of education at law firm Shakespeare Martino. Smita, your highlight of the week? So my highlight of the week, although please do not ask me to actually do this now, was learning how to say, you have no authority here, Jackie Weaver, in Portuguese. Um, that really, really made my week. Well, well go on. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely not. That's between me and Geolingo. It's the sanctity of the uh, Geolingo experience. And in Nottingham, Paul Greatrix is Registrar and Secretary at the University of Nottingham, author of Wonky's Registrarism and the host of Higher Education's second best podcast, Registrars Talking About Stuff. Paul, your highlight of the week, please. Uh, it's difficult to uh, sift through all the highlights, but my my most exciting highlight of the week this, this morning on the Today programme, hearing Alex Neal, former um, MP, uh, refer to the phrase you'll get your jotters uh, <laughs> describing the potential outcome of the uh, salmon sturgeon spat in Scotland. Well maybe there'll be more news of that by the time this podcast lands who knows. Anyway we start this week with return to campus. On Monday Prime Minister Boris Johnson unveiled his long awaited roadmap out of restrictions that he said would guide us cautiously but irreversibly towards reclaiming our freedoms. Smita what's been going on? Well we have been uh, blessed and graced Jim with what I like to <laughs> call return to campus two uh, re- revenge of the lateral flow tests um, b- because we have been here before haven't we we've had lots of conversations about safe returns to campus and um, obviously this uh, this week we got the updated guidance uh, always helpful from the DFE about the return to campus so the big highlights for me really were uh, obviously the prioritization as we would all expect of people who need access to practical facilities and laboratories, but that leaves a lot of students still very unclear about if and when they are going to be returning to campus. Um, secondly, I think that the, the SAGE data, which sort of reinforced, again, things that many of us would probably have suspected, which is universities have done a very good job of making sure that the actual uh, teaching and learning space is safe. Um, it's the Any um, transmission has really been going on around the planned teaching activities in in um, you know accommodation and what students choose to do outside that uh, planned environment so that i think is quite useful to reflect on um uh, and then lastly we've still got you know those those big questions that students have been asking all year about well what is going to happen to the things we've missed and to expenses we've incurred etc for accommodation which 
we still don't really have any answers from anybody on. Paul, before students get tested twice a week, they should make sure they have arrangements in place to travel home safely and should not use public transport or a taxi or private hire vehicle to return home. So how are people getting home at Nottingham? <laughs> that, uh, that's a, a, an excellent question. It is. Um, there are elements of the guidance, I think, which are extremely challenging to to, uh, to operationalize, if I can put it that way. Um, but uh, I, I mean, I, th- I think it is it, it is difficult. I mean, government is balancing a whole load of contradictory um, uh, demands here. Um, you know, lots of students want to get back into their studies. Lots of universities want them back, um, but there is a, a real anxiety about mass transit um, of students uh, across the country. I think. An element of this challenge, though, is really the fact that in, you know, in most of our universities, large numbers of students, well beyond those who were actually uh, anticipated, have already returned. And, you know, I, so I think that there is a, there is a, an uncertainty about exactly, you know, who will actually be traveling uh, to or from uh, uh, university and indeed what's going to happen when they get there. And uh, as you say, if they're tested, will they be going back and by what means of transport? So it, it, it's really, you know, messy as ever, as uh, Smita suggested. It is, you know, it is all over again. Smita, are we about to get a load of sort of how to get students home for Easter discourse because so many students are back? Or or do you figure ministers don't really want to admit how many students are back and so won't really talk about it? That was exactly the point that I was going to to make, which was that, you know, as Paul said, a lot of students are already back in halls and this guidance has almost airbrushed them out and assumed they're not. So if you flip it on the on its head, you've got exactly that issue that when we're going talking about people going back, the approach that's adopted won't recognise that people, you know, many people will just do what they want to do now um, rather than following, you know, the detailed guidance of the DfE. I guess the DfE would probably say, well, we can't not issue the guidance. That's our job. We've got to make sure the guidance is in place. But um, I think Paul expressed it very eloquently there when he said that the, there are challenges in operationalising um, guidance that does not reflect reality. Paul, March the 8th, is it like, I mean, you know, I mean, that's a couple of three weeks away. Well, no, I mean, it's less than two weeks. Now. It, Under two it weeks isn't away, possible yeah. for international students from red list countries to get here and get and stay in a premier room for two weeks is it i mean it's, it's just uh, not long no, it's, not, it's not, not enough notice is it no and um i you know i don't think there'll be well, there'll be very very little um uh, of that uh, happening i think um so uh, i mean I, you know international students have been in an incredibly difficult um position uh, throughout this and but uh, yeah i don't see uh, suddenly a load of uh, new arrivals happening in 10 days time i i just think you know it's it's simply uh, simply not going to happen. Where I think that um, you know what will be interesting is uh, the extent to which the you know the the very very firm messages firmer than ever now coming out from government on on the need for the testing regime, how they actually play out in practice. Because a lot of these students who have come back who technically weren't supposed to, but they're all adults, they're all citizens. They you know they can make their own decisions. We can't force them not to enter the campus. We can't force them to stay at home. Um, we we you know we can't lock them in their uh, their private houses. They're, they're citizens, um, but. It's 
it's the extent to which they will actually go follow the testing regime that is required because quite a lot of them will be thinking, well, hang on a second, I don't really want to tell people I'm here uh, because I'm, I'm sort of not supposed to be. So I better not get a test in case they find out. And that's really unhelpful because actually we need to know where people are. We need to know that they're being tested regularly and that if they do test positive, they're isolating appropriately and then universities can actually support them while they're isolating as well. So the, the kind of ramping up of the testing regime is really important for everyone. And also it's the thing that unlocks the next stages for universities in the widening up of the, the kind of final groups coming back to campus. Of course, it then begs the question, what, what is left for the, uh, for those students who are at the back of the queue, uh, to come back to, uh, you know, come middle of May? Yeah. Yeah. Cause later after Easter, you know, with some honorable and notable exceptions, there's a hell of a lot of courses at a hell of a lot of universities that haven't got any teaching left. What are they, what are we dragging them back for? I don't know, Jim. <laughs> I, I find the whole conversation so frustrating because actually, if you, if we had been able to take a longer view of this earlier in the year, we could have done something different. We could have thought about, um, you know, looking at how we teach courses, looking at things that we could bring into that final term that, you know, might be useful, but may not be what they would be expecting to do at that time, or may even be, you know, skills that they, they, they would be useful for them to get, but aren't part of the course, all sorts of things that could have been considered. Um, but I'm, you know, I, in a way, I'll defer to Paul on this, but um, I'm assuming it's far, far too late for really particularly meaningful provision to be arranged, you know, if, if there isn't scheduled provision for that period, which, as you say, for many courses, there might not be very And look, much. just before we pick, find out from Paul the kind of, you know, the sense of where that's at, do, do you figure there may be kind of, you know, legal problems if universities run out of time to make good on the provision that they have not been able to put on? There, There is a worry in my mind because uh, everybody talks about the idea that, um, you know, a force majeure approach, which says we can make some changes to the course, would never really allow you to deliver something that was completely different to what the student yeah. thought they were going to get. Okay, um, And we talk about refunds in those circumstances. But if you analyse it, deciding that you can no longer deliver what you had originally contracted to do to any degree, i.e. it's a completely different course now, um, is taking us into the realm of frustration. Yeah. Because what we're saying is external forces meant that we could not deliver what we had promised to do. We, it's now impossible for us to deliver that. If, if something is frustrated, then yes, uh, the, the, the party that paid the money under it is entitled to the money back. But the party that delivered under the contract up to the point at which it was frustrated is entitled to its reasonable expenses that it incurred in delivering whatever it could. So it's not a straightforward, you get all your money back. But more crucially, you are then left in a position where people have spent up to three years, four years, in some cases, five years on a programme, and now have nothing, absolutely nothing to show yeah. for it, because they're not even going to get a degree of any sort. The whole contract has been frustrated. I don't think any of us wants to end up there. Um, so it's, so it's so whether we, we can find somewhere else to end up, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. it, it well, it, it is. Or, or, you know, or perhaps, uh, you, you know, frustration is what happens when the parties can't agree. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that, that there is so, you know, if, if you can reach a point where students are willing to accept that, yes, I didn't get all the practical elements, but, you know, I will be allowed to do them after I graduate or whatever other alternatives people have been talking about. Um, or I'll get a different degree instead of the one that I was scheduled on because it hasn't been possible to deliver everything I needed to achieve the competences in that first degree that that might save the situation but all I, I suppose I'm counseling is that this ratcheting up of legal analysis doesn't take us to a happy place no, for anyone no, no. <laughs> um, so let's not do that let's instead focus practically on saying nobody wanted to be here 
nobody could do anything to stop us being here given the kind of pandemic situation. So what can we, what's the best outcome? Yeah. And I guess the problem with the, 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 the legal thing, Paul, is that there are two parties, right? The student and the, and the provider, but there's another party in all of this, isn't there? <laughs> well, 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 there is absolutely. But it, before we come on to that, that particular point, which I do think is really important about who, who's actually paying whom here is the, you know, the issue, what's happened over the past 12 months is that every university has adapted that delivery in order to try and enable students to, you know, to meet the learning outcomes so that the, they aren't frustrated in terms of the you know, achieving the degree that they were expecting to do that they signed up for, albeit with some some variation um, at the margins. And whilst that was incredibly difficult um, in the, the last academic year leading up to last summer, uh, most of the time we got there. Over the past nine months, so you know, there's been an awful lot of adaptation to to a blended learning model. Yes, we had a bigger opening up in the autumn, and we've had a, a close down now. But actually, you know. Academic colleagues have, have adapted their delivery much more to recognise the the need to provide better in that blended environment. But I think that you know the the challenge with the return after Easter is that you're going to have a, a whole group of students who are not finalists but will be going into their final year next year who've missed a whole bunch of practical opportunities who really do need to catch up, and that's the you know that's going to be the only time to do it. And to try and timetable all of that in is really important. Finalists, yeah, there's not going to be necessarily a lot of face-to-face stuff that they're going to have but overall to deliver all this you know in an open campus in a a covid secure way you're simply not going to have all of the learning opportunities for all of the people for all the time that you want to do particularly given traditionally this doesn't happen at this time of year so there's an awful lot to be planned through because the wider issue so i mean the frustration bit in the kind of common sense rather than the legal frustration bit on the part of lots of students is that all this stuff in terms of the student experience, which they'd hoped for, wanted, you know, was really meant to be part of what they were looking forward to being on university campuses for is the, you know, is, is the really big gap here, right? And, you know, whilst, you know, some stuff's gone online, actually, it can't really compensate for the, for the absence of all that, you know, actual social experience and mixing with friends and the whole panoply of, of student life in a university. And so I think, you know, the students will be quite reasonably frustrated about the, um, about the lack of, uh, of of that provision, but that's very very difficult to say. Um, you know, it's what I'm paying for, and even then, it isn't what they're paying for because they don't pay until you know uh, they start earning enough money to start repaying their student loan, which in any case is given to the university by the by the student loan company rather than the, the student directly. So they're not actually paying for it directly at well, the time. Well, let's not go there again. Let's not go there again. International students, people that pay up front, and so on. Now, <laughs> look, Smita. The, the other thing I was thinking the other day was after Easter, like there is a set. There are some people. Have been talking to this week that have got this kind of vague sense that after easter you know this is all going to be very easy but actually after easter there's still a pandemic on (laughs) young people will be vaccinated last (laughs) and you know it's not like you know we're we're suddenly going to be able to go to you know no meters plus there's still going to be you know big 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 restrictions aren't there and you know is it wise to for universities to to fill up their halls after easter with nothing really for students to do again like last september well this is uh you know that this is why i felt like it was um you know, just it feels like Groundhog Day, doesn't it? We just keep coming back to the same points. Uh, but I think in some ways we've already touched on 
the problems universities face here. So the, the point is, why are we asking people to go somewhere? Whether it's going into the office, whether it's going into <laughs> yeah, you know, the shops, the, the <laughs> university, whatever. Is there a reason right now for them to be there? And with students, um, a lot is going to depend on the kind of things Paul's just talked about. You know, is that if they if they're there because they can compensate for some of the things they've missed? Brilliant. Yeah get them there. They absolutely need to be there. If on the other hand, they're just there because there is some political desire to show we've got back to normal, even though we haven't, then clearly, you know, you, you, you ask the question, are we increasing the risks of, you know, extending the, the, the need for restrictions, raising mutations yeah. and all the rest of it for no good reason? I don't think I can, you know, answer that question because the government's already answered it. They want to suggest through this loosening of restrictions that we will reach a point of normality. There's a trap here, isn't there, Paul, which is if universities kind of respond to this political mood music about, you know, mental health and return and so on, that they just get accused of kind of rent-seeking because, you know, people are going to assume, like the press has assumed, that this is all about not having to do rent rebates in the third term. No, I mean, they're absolutely right. Um, But I mean, let's go back to this point. Is students, on the whole, are adults, right? They are responsible for making their own decisions. Universities cannot prevent students returning to the towns in which they live, to the accommodation that they have paid for, to which they, you know, have a, a contractual obligation. You know, they, they, you know, they are. They can choose not to, um, and you know, that may or may not have have consequences. But they are adults, and they they have free will. Um, and you know, if they are back and back in large numbers, as they are in most universities around the country, we, I think, absolutely have an obligation to seek to provide the best we can to enable them to get the most out of their time whilst enrolled as students at our universities. And I mean, I, you know, I, I despair at the, you know, the constant reference to the, you know, the nirvana that comes after uh, June the 21st or whichever date it, you know, it, it is or will be in the future. But, you know, everyone is looking at that rather than the stages to, to, to it. And you're absolutely right, Jim. I mean, you know, we, we are going to be living with this pandemic for years, right? And we're going to have to be really, really cautious for a long time. It is not going to be, you know, free love and nirvana from the 21st of June, pubs open. I mean, I worry about that message because students are getting that message and they're thinking it's going to be party time at the end of term and we're all going to be able to go mental and we've been locked up for a year and we deserve it. And that's, I think, the you know, one of the big fears about, uh, about the term ahead. Right, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. I'm Charlotte Brooks, a PhD student at the University of Nottingham. In one key this week, I'm sharing some initial thoughts from my research, which explores the impact of a criminal record on access to higher education. In England and Wales, over 11 million people have a criminal record. That's one in six. The majority of criminal records are for non-violent offences, and most convictions do not result in a prison sentence. In relation to higher education, little is known about how a criminal record can impact on participation rates in the UK. But we do know that groups are already underrepresented at undergraduate and postgraduate level. For instance, people from black, Asian, minority ethnic backgrounds, people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds and people with care experience are disproportionately criminalised. Despite this, the obstacles faced by students with a criminal record are rarely recognised in debates about fair admissions and widening participation. It is vital that we learn more about how the criminal records disclosure regime and universities' policies and practices can impact people with a criminal record to ensure that opportunities to access and participate in higher education are unlocked. 
Now, the Office for Students has published a review of digital learning and teaching during the COVID-19 pandemic called Gravity Assist. Paul, what's going on here? Well, it's a a big report, a very big report, um, uh, authored by uh, Michael Barber, the outgoing chair of the Office for Students. And uh, it's, uh, you know, 150 uh, fun-packed pages um, of uh, really, well, frankly, quite dry stuff all about digital learning. And I mean, it's slightly, I mean, this is an area of, of real interest for, for, for Michael Barber. Um, and uh, many will recall um, a similarly uh, bizarrely titled document from 2013 um, uh, called The Avalanche is Coming, which was all about how universities were going to be swept away by the massive online course providers. And uh, and obviously that didn't happen. Um, but this is a, a much more pragmatic tome um, um, from, from Michael Barber. Um, and, um, I'll be honest, I've not read it all. Um, it's 150 pages and, um, it's a bit dull. Um, um, but it does have a really exciting premise, right? And the exciting premise, and, uh, so Michael does go for these, you know, these big statements is that in the same way as in order to get a satellite from Earth to Pluto, you've got to actually, um, uh, swing it by Jupiter to get the assistance of gravity from Jupiter in order to get there. Um, what universities need to do is use the assistance, the gravity assistance of the COVID pandemic and all that we've gained in terms of online learning from that in order to project us at speed into a, a new and bright um, tomorrow rather than out of the solar system forever which is of course the other way of reading this metaphor um, but it's all very exciting very digital very lovely but um, I mean I think it, what is interesting about it um, is that actually an awful lot of it is common sense writ large an awful lot of it reflects what the sector has done um, and is playing back what the sector has learned over the past year and uh, it's it's very pragmatic it does have a little bit of a feel of the kind of um what used to be in the uh, in the 1970s the kind of contractual obligations album where artists uh, feel required to produce something before they leave their label um uh, because uh you know it it is really really long um it's got all the outtakes in there um but the summaries the executive summary very sensible stuff it requires a lot of action by a lot of universities i fear though it will only be read by the the real enthusiasts the real online learning wonks who will um you know who will quite enjoy it and then say that they knew it all anyway um and um vice chancellors will like me not get past the uh, executive summary now, meter i mean there are lots of bits in here that i like my, my my favorite bit can i reveal my favorite bit was so he says one option for streamlining the range of tools and platforms available is to create a single space for students and staff to interact with learning data resources video conferencing and communities of learning so Michael appears to have invented the VLE. Here we are. Let's party like it's 2004. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was going to just, I I was really going to sort of, in a way, um, there was nothing that I read, and admittedly, like, Paul, I haven't read all 150 pages, and I don't think I would understand all 150 pages, even if I did read it. But the the sort of central premise of it seems to me to be absolutely unremarkable. Okay, every single sector has learned that we've had to do things as a result of COVID, which have in a way accelerated trends that were already there. So in the legal sector, agile working is the thing. Um, So he's quite right. Universities have got to a space where 
they've made more progress in this area than they could ever have contemplated if they'd sat, you know, back last, well, not last January, but maybe the, the sort of October before and thought, what are we going to do over the next 18 months about digital learning? And he's absolutely also right that the important thing now is to make sure we capitalise on the progress that's been made to turbocharge other plans that people already had in this area. So it's a great way of bringing together a list of things that probably everybody's already thinking they should do as as paul said the next yeah, issue is how that? do you actually make yeah. it happen yeah, yeah. And i i think that i mean uh, i can't believe you used turbo charge without irony there smita by the way um but the, but I'm, she? The, 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 i'm saying the, nothing but the the thing that is perhaps remarkable about it is the extent to which it is uh, it, it majors on getting students involved in helping uh, co-design the learning, which I think, you know, a, a couple of years ago in a document like this, you you know, you would have expected a, a, a footnote to that effect. I think it's really big on that, which is which is really great. Um, the other thing is is the issue of you know what's often called kind of digital poverty, right? The access of uh, students in particular, uh, those from uh, particularly disadvantaged backgrounds, to the necessary necessary broadband and indeed kit that they need in order to fully access the online world and i think that's an absolutely critical issue and uh, um you know so i mean it's, it goes beyond just you know government providing a few laptops it's absolutely elemental if you're going to have a partly online blended learning model you have to ensure that everyone everyone literally everyone is yeah. enabled to participate and that's quite yeah. costly to do Smeta, i mean more broadly um, um yeah. you know th- to quote my colleague david kernahan um when this is all over are we all going to be keen to leap onto a zoom quiz when the pub is open yeah i mean the, the, the all the evidence and again i think the report recognizes this is that no one is for a moment suggesting you can completely replace face-to-face interactions, whether in the pub or in the seminar room or whatever, with online access. Um, I think, though, what the what has happened as a result of the pandemic, certainly, uh, certainly, this is a personal reflection, I suppose, is I'm much more comfortable now with interacting with people on things like Zoom or Teams or whatever than at the beginning. So I think we can now look to creating environments that are online which people want to be part of rather than our stultifyingly dull or you know really really uncomfortable experiences for everyone um but i'm not sure that it, it should even be a goal to say well you know you're always just going to jump on, on online rather than going face to face it's how do we blend that in the most optimal way where both parts of the experience are really high quality yeah. and where you're and not just sort of repeating the effort in order to kind of meet different audiences and kind of you know <laughs> becoming exhausted exactly as a result. Yeah. exactly and and that and that does go back to Paul's point that you know if you're going to do it so that you're not de- duplicating, um, then it must be that everyone can access both both parts of it. And as we know, there are some students who struggle to access the kind of physical learning environment. You know the, the reports we've seen recently about students with disabilities. So both areas need real focus to ensure that access is universal and of the same quality. Hello, I'm Wonky's Editor-in-Chief, Mark Leach, and I just want to take a moment of your time to tell you about an event we have coming up. Now, everyone can agree that university admissions should be fair, but decades of reviews have failed to achieve a lasting settlement. And in what appears to be an unprecedented moment of consensus, in recent months, policymakers, universities and students all agree that implementing some form of post-qualification admissions is now the way forward. But in what form? Join us on the 2nd of March for The Future Shape of Admissions, a wonky at-home event in partnership with UCAS to discuss just that. We'll explore the options on the table for policy from PQA to PQB 
and think through their implications for universities, admissions professionals, schools and applicants. We'll hear fresh thinking from UCAS on possible models for admissions and stage the debate that will decide once and for all, we hope, whether the HE sector is really ready for post-qualification admissions. That's the future shape of admissions. 2nd of March. Find out more and book your place now at wonky.com slash events. Next up, the Sutton Trust has published two pieces of research on how the pandemic has affected the university experience and the impact that this may have had on employability. Smita, what's going on in here? Um, so in a little a little like the conversation we've just had about Gravity Assist, I think what um, the Sutton Trust has done is to put together things that probably all of us suspected had happened and um, were concerned about in a, in a way that really drives home um, the points that in the focus, rightly, on making sure that students can complete their programmes of study, um, so the teaching, learning and assessment side of things, uh, we shouldn't overlook all the other areas of their of their um, university life that have been adversely affected. Um, you know, Paul alluded to this earlier in the, in the conversation we were having about the return to campus, but the, the report highlights... Um, how, how, what a big impact there has been on things like work experience, um, the experience of living on campus away from home, um, and other extracurricular activities that, that are really about life skills, which we know that employers really, really value. So the, 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 what the Sutton Trust's point, as you would expect, is that this has disproportionately affected people who were already disadvantaged in those areas, who didn't have, you know, um, a network of people who would be willing to give them placements and internships and things like that. So they've created a bursary to try to help those students. But I guess the wider point about um, what can universities do for those who are still continuing their studies to address these issues is uh, is, is definitely worth Yeah, reflecting. I mean, Paul, I, I actually found, you know, I thought that, you know, it was, as ever, great stuff from the Sutton Trust, but I actually thought the recommendations were quite underwhelming. And, you know, I wonder, are there better ideas out there about how we can kind of make up for some of this, what looks like quite significant educational loss? Not, not you know, kind of course and curriculum education loss, but this kind of wider skills development loss that, as Smita says, the Sutton Trust reckon is kind of disproportionately impacting people from poor backgrounds. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think, I mean, lots of universities offer, um, you know, supplementary uh, skills programmes, which are, you know, largely free, optional, additional. I think the, and, you know, and I, I think that they provide a really helpful um, a supplement to in-course uh, learning and development activity. Um, but I think they are disproportionately taken up by um, students who are already advantaged in any case because they identify that they've got deficits and they want to take the opportunities presented by universities to fulfil them. So providing tailored directive opportunities for those who are most in need of them is just really, really hard to do because, you know, you have to make things then compulsory and that's just really hard in the university environment. But I do think that where the Sutton Trust have, have hit on something is the, the issue of the work experience opportunities that the, the, there is no substitute, I think, for the, the kind of practical hands-on experience you get either as part of a kind of part-time uh, role or some kind of internment or placement or work experience during a vacation period. And that is the hardest thing for disadvantaged students to arrange and access because those with, you know, tons of social capital always get the best gigs and it's just always been like that so finding ways to provide access to great work experience opportunities you know with good companies or in good roles is i think absolutely key so i think they're right to kind of not try and do too much here and focus on that that thing and that's 
then uh, what I would say though is that the, then the next phase of actually supporting people through through the job application process and helping them reflect on what they've learned and what their skills are is also equally important because again those who are most advantaged tend to be the ones who are looking for the support directly um, rather than uh, hiding in the shadows so but you know higher education is a you know it's a fantastic you know uh, means of enhancing your abilities or your positioning in the employment marketplace um and you know we owe it to all of our students to give them you know the best opportunity to make the most of that resource uh, when they're looking for jobs so I, I i think that you know this is this is positive it does feel like a drop in the ocean there yeah um so i, I mean i was nodding so hard as paul was talking there that i thought my head was going to fall off at one point um but there are just a couple of points as well that i wanted to to add into the thinking on this, which is, firstly, you know, we, we, we talk about um, the importance of lifelong learning in the current, you know, even before the pandemic, the recognition that people have got very, very long working lives and therefore they can't just go in for three years of higher education and that's it. They're going to have to keep dipping back in. So maybe we could see this recovery period as part of, you know, how we propose to support people more generally when they need to think about skills for work etc um and that you know so so rather than seeing it as exceptional and only to do with the pandemic this is work that we ought to be doing more more generally um anyway and the other thing i thought was that uh businesses uh you know like mine we, we've we've kind of pivoted our uh, corporate social responsibility thinking to to in some ways very much similar civic space to universities to say you know what is the impact we're making on our communities and I think there could be some interesting conversations to be had between universities and businesses in their regions to say a, a sort of very important priority now has to be making sure that disadvantaged students are not left more disadvantaged by what's happened in the pandemic. So will you come up with some of these work experience opportunities to try and bridge that gap and see it as an actual shared civic endeavour um, to ensure that there is inclusive recovery? In the end, if a lot of this is about employability, then you know, sure, of course, we should, you know, take steps to make sure that disadvantaged students aren't further disadvantaged. But in the end, one of the things that would help would be more jobs. And that's difficult in a recession, right? So, you know, how how can we persuade, uh, you know, small to medium enterprises, business in general to take on our graduates in the middle of a punishing recession? No, I I think that's a a good point, but I mean, there are uh, four graduates Right, the the job market is not nearly as disastrous as it is for non graduates, and I think that's a really important. So even in the depths of a recession, you are um, you know better placed as a graduate to to get a job than uh, at undergraduate level job than you are as a, as a non graduate. I do think university career services have a really important part to play in this because they are engaged in networks of local businesses, right, and they are engaged on a, on a mission to explain as well to ensure that you know particularly small and medium sized businesses business owners understand the merits, the benefits of taking on a graduate uh, as opposed to just recruiting someone uh, walking down the street. And I, I think they've got a, a you know an absolutely key role um, uh, to play in all of that. But I, I, I mean, I, I do think, you know, recessions do show what a good investment higher education is for the individual and how it can genuinely change your, your life chances. So I, I, you know, I think it's really important to reinforce that. So the two, the, the two other points I was going to make here, one is, you know, 
the, the the craziest thing for universities to do at this point in the cycle is to disinvest in careers and employability services. If anything, should be employing you know more careers specialists and providing more services for um, uh, forthcoming graduates. The other thing is, which relates to another part of the the, the Saturn Trust activities, is that it does reflect on the the really vital part played by the students unions in our universities in supporting this vast range of extracurricular activities from which students derive huge amounts of benefit in terms of skills acquisition um, as well. And I think that's, you know, something that universities often underplay as well. These two things go absolutely hand in hand in helping students reflect on what they've learned, not just within, but beyond the curriculum and how that makes them more employable too. Now, every week on the show, we delve deep into the sector's past to discover stories of how things were and how things came to be. With Nottingham Trent's academic registrar, Mike Ratcliffe, here's the hidden history of HE. One of the things I think makes history of higher education interesting is the the amount of continuity and the amount of change that we see. So one of the things I really enjoy is looking at old regulations of how we looked after students. Um, Sometimes that's quite useful because you get really good ideas of how you regulate students now in the the present. But I think sometimes it just shows us that we're still dealing with some of the same challenges. So my favourite set of these regulations is the statutes of the Collegium Sapienti at Freiburg University, which were written in 1497. And they are beautiful. They are illustrated, which I think is a great idea. We should run that out across um, universities anyway. But they cover the whole of student life. They were written by a bishop who'd been working with the university for a long time. He understood what students got up to, uh, and he set out a complete set of rules. So it has everything you could possibly want to run a proper university. So it's got rules about how you uh, welcome a student to the university, how you make a list of the furnishings in their room so it gets an inventory and so that it's clear that they've got to account for everything that's in the rooms. Um, there's a system for allocating the rooms. It's done by lottery so no one can have the good rooms um, on favouritism uh, and there are quite clear rules about what time you have to go to bed and that there's study time. Everyone should be quiet. Uh, you have to clean your room once a week. There's a great set of rules for how you have to make your bed immediately after you've risen in the morning. uh, And then you get into the excitement, which is the penalty system. So the regulation says failure to comply as a result of laziness when noticed during the weekly inspection and reported to the president shall be punished by the removal of wine. If this should happen frequently, the scholar in question shall be deprived of his bed. Now, the great thing about all of these regulations is basically the tariff system is how much wine you have removed for the different infringements you go through. Now, we have to remember that obviously um, wine was a different kind of commodity. It was you know, a drinkable uh, uh, drink. It wasn't quite the same as uh, you know, having a, you know, uh, your vodka-based um, uh, confection taken away from you by the university. But that's how it works. You go through uh, and you, you get all these punishments. So there's a whole bunch of things that these people are are, are not allowed to do. They're, they're kind of clerks in lay orders, there, so they're kind of semi-religious, but it's very clear there's lots of things they shouldn't be getting on to. So uh, there's to be no loose, frivolous, frivolous uh, or obscene song, no blasphemy and no kinds of boasting. Um, dice, cards and sticks for casting locks on all games of chance are forbidden. Disregard of this rule should be punished with the loss of wine for a week. Chess, however, is allowed. And it goes on. So there are these lovely things. So, uh, again, one of the things we do is we, we often contrast ourselves with uh, people in the US. So there's a lot of very clear rules about no arms allowed. So you have to hand your sword into the president when you arrive at the college. Uh, if you need it back, you can go and get it when you, you're, you know, if you're going outside town, uh, but you're not allowed to keep it in, in the hall. And there are very clear rules about no fighting in the, in the college and, and what you do with it. 
And as you go through the sets of regulations, each has this wonderful little illustration showing you exactly what's going on. So there's every everything is, is beautifully set out and laid down. But it's a pocket set of rules, and most of it, uh, probably apart from the swords, is entirely applicable to the modern university. And finally, the Department for Education has announced students taking GCSE, AS and A-levels will receive grades as assessed by their teachers. Paul, the Examine Shambles is back for a second season. Well, yes, it is. And um, uh, how delighted we all are. I mean, I think it was an announcement everyone was expecting. um, But and it is perhaps surprising it's taken quite this long in England uh, to to emerge. Um, Decisions had already been announced uh, in other parts of the UK. Um, uh, But I I, I suspect, um, as many are characterising it, is the you know we're in the 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 least bad place we could be, um, given that we are in a overall um, a, a bad place. Universities will be slightly relieved that uh, the date of uh, transmission of grades to them will be slightly earlier. Um, slightly concerned, well, more than slightly concerned, of the the number and uh, duration of an appeals process that is being signalled up front as something that's going to happen. But I, I what we don't know, of course, is how this will actually play out in practice, because we are, I think, uh, not unreasonably expecting um, a uh, obviously there being no algorithms at play this year at all. Algorithms are no longer allowed, um, but there will be um, perhaps I think it's not unreasonable to expect um, an element of um, inflation in terms of outcomes. Uh, everyone is predicting that what that will mean for the offers that universities have made to applicants and how many places will then be filled and uh, how much oversubscription there will be in certain areas goodness knows Uh, I think it's going to be a really really difficult August for our universities and I don't think anyone's excited about it but I I have to say I feel for this this year's cohort of uh, uh, A-level students um, they've had it so hard um, and I really hope that we find ways to treat them fairly and reasonably as part of this process and they, they, they get what they feel they deserved at the end of it. Smita, it remains the case that in the CMA guidance that OFS says providers have to have due regard to, that says, you know, if you have an offer and you meet the terms of the offer, then you have a legal right to enter that university, right? So that is that is really difficult, isn't it? If there's a ma- massive wedge of grade inflation. I mean, admissions always was like landing a Boeing 747 on a postage stamp, but it's even harder now. It is, it is. And um, before I answer that very interesting <laughs> question, I just would like to declare a, an interest because my son is going through exactly uh, the, the, the things that um, Paul's just described. And um, candidly, I'm absolutely raging about the fact that we've ended up here again. But that's, you know, where, where, where we are. Um, so your point about, uh, you know, if you're made an offer, you're entitled to a place um, is absolutely right. But it does, of course, depend on the terms of the offer. And um, where there is oversubscription that is outside the control of the university, I don't see any reason why, from a contractual point of view, I will leave aside the sector practice that UCAS um, support. Um, you could not say to somebody up front, look, we're making you this offer. We base it on the kind of, you know, dark arts. But in practice, you know, the idea that that you could end up with sort of 10,000 students who are eligible for 100 places on a course and they're all entitled to come is clearly a nonsense. You'd have to do something about deferring some of them. And I think it's only fair that people should be warned of that up front um, as, you know, we'll do everything. If the the cock up is at our end and we've just kind of, you know, had had a complete moment and given out loads of offers that we shouldn't have done, 
that's different. But where it's something like this, where, you know, we are in uh, the end of February and um, we've now been given a kind of, you know, well, let's, it's all down to schools. They'll do what they want to do. So we literally cannot predict what's going to happen. These are the circumstances where from a contractual point of view, even with a consumer, it would have been fair to draw that to their attention. You'd have to be very clear about it um, and say to them, this is a risk that we cannot entirely absorb. Because the second point is, when all these students turn up and get a terrible experience because they're all being taught on boats or whatever, you know. You know oh, that's all. Who's I've, teaching people I've, on boats? I've got a whole I'm sure I remember a story, yeah, though. It was a story. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not suggesting Nottingham would be teaching people on boats, but, you know, coastal areas. Or, you know, the, we've, 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 hired, we've hired a roller coaster at, us, at yeah. uh, Alton Towers and, you know, you can study there. Um, what, you know, the, the, the idea being that Yes, you 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 you're entitled to a place, but you're entitled to a place of a certain standard and with a certain level of facilities. So, again, over recruiting and not being able to provide a student experience that that is commensurate with what was promised is itself a problem. Um, and I think UCAS's position of saying, "Well, yes, uh, you know, from a sector point of view, if you it's made the offer, really you really stand by it, it yeah. doesn't really reflect." Either the legal options or, or the or the re, or the reality of, of you know what that might mean for the student experience. Um, I think you you know it, obviously if you've already made offers and you haven't put anything in about oversubscription, then it's too late. You've, you you're bound by what you said at the time. But it is something to think about for the future. Although we're all hoping we'll go back to normal. Surely what this has taught us is that there is no guarantee of normal in any year. I mean, I, I, there is real danger of market instability. I mean, I, I do think that the uh, the review of admissions processes, which is ongoing, admittedly, there are at least three different reviews of admissions processes uh, ongoing. And I'm not entirely certain which is the, um, you know, the definitive one. The reviews of admissions processes will, I think, give us an opportunity to sort this out sensibly, I hope, and properly for the future in the interests of applicants universities and indeed you know the country and schools as well so I, I, I think we do need to step back and do this do this properly because it cannot go on like this right I mean you know it, it, it absolutely cannot go on like this I mean one one beneficial um, uh, side effect I, I, I guess is that um, you know universities are, are not going to be you know accused successfully of uh, allowing unnecessary grade inflation uh, for a year given that the, you know the secretary of state himself has sanctioned um uh, it this year so uh, we we do get small uh, small respite Right, that's about it for this week. Remember to delve deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes. Do remember you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show via Apple Podcasts or your favourite Android podcast directory. Or you'll find the feed you need on wonky.com forward slash podcast. And if you fancy appearing as a guest on the show, do drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we'll be in touch. So thanks to Paul, Smita, everyone at Team Wonky for making it happen behind the scenes. And until next week, stay wonky. (laughs) 